Welcome to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BAE Systems. I'm Ben Tudor. For the last couple of decades, the focus has been on banks as a natural choke point at which money laundering can be slowed or stopped. It's hardly surprising then that the criminals are actively pursuing other avenues to turn dirty money into legitimate funds and put clean money to illicit uses too. Today we're talking about trade-based money laundering, also known as TBML. It's distinct from the other two main types, laundering via the financial system itself, and the physical movement of illicit cash. With TBML, rather than sneaking money into banks, criminals use seemingly legitimate trade to move value around and clean dirty money. I'm joined today by Anton Mosienko, Research Fellow at the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI, and John Draper, New Ventures Lead at our own Features team. Anton, John, welcome. Firstly, how do all kinds of organisations end up involved in TBML, knowingly or otherwise? Could you give an example or two, perhaps? Well, I guess, as you said, trade-based money laundering involves the abuse of trade for the purpose of moving or disguising criminal proceeds. And that means that in addition to banks, or perhaps much more than banks, you have other types of companies involved, for example, shipping lines or freight forwarders. And of course, those companies would be unwittingly exploited to use potentially criminal proceeds whereas they're not parts of the anti-money laundering regime as it currently exists. And that raises some new vulnerabilities that can't be addressed if you only look at the financial sector. Mm -hmm. Is it just, I know you describe logistics companies or companies involved in logistics in some way, shape or form. Um, Does it also expand out to other organisations, thinking of um, distributors or um, uh, vendors, for example? Yes, so uh, potentially, if you're involved in any kind of trade, you might be um, having vulnerabilities that are related to trade-based money laundering. For example, one interesting instance of that would be the 2014 geographic targeting orders in the US that were directed at the Los Angeles Fashion District. And there the problem was that some of the fashion companies, among other types of businesses, were unwittingly involved in what is known as black market peso exchange. So if you're a drug trafficker from South America operating within the United States, you might use your criminal cash to purchase legitimate goods that are being shipped back to the country where you come from and where you're in a way headquartered. And then those goods are being sold by legitimate companies to legitimate customers and the proceeds are used to pay back people involved in the drug trafficking supply chain. And that is one example of legitimate companies in the US, a highly regulated country, being potentially used to launder criminal income. Mm-hmm. Excellent. John, and do you have a couple of examples or an example you're going to Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, maybe one of the ways to, to understand this is to talk through an example and kind of see from the from the money launderer's perspective how they need to get this done and therefore who they need to use to get it done. Um, I mean, one example that's quite commonly used is quite a simple example, but it's a good way to get into understanding it is uh, it's called over-invoicing. Um, and that's where you've got um, uh, Alice and Bob, two trading entities, they're going to trade goods with each other. Um, and then you've got Mallory over here, who's malicious, and he's been doing drug smuggling or, or arms trade or narcotics or human trafficking or whatever it is. And they've got the, um, the proceeds of that crime that they need to move back to Alice, let's say, in a different country. Um, and so Alice and Bob are going to trade, uh, and that's going to result in that value moving. So in the case of over-invoicing, um, 
it's quite cunning because the value that they're trying to move illicitly moves in the opposite direction to the trade. Um, so in that case, uh, what happens is Alice will sell Bob some goods, uh, but the amount Alice charges, invoices for those goods, is higher than their actual value. So Bob will then buy those goods, sell them on the market, on the open market, and, and retrieve the value, but has made a loss because they've overpaid Alice. And so what's happened there is effectively the, the difference between the amount Bob has paid Alice for those goods and the amount that Bob was then able to get by selling those goods, his loss, is that that amount of value has just moved from Bob to Alice. And so uh, that, that illicit uh, value that was generated in one country has moved to the other. So it's quite a, a sneaky thing that's going on. It's not always obvious. It doesn't go with the trade necessarily. Um, and if you look at what you needed to achieve that as, as those trading entities, where you needed to move some goods, um, it was between countries. So you needed to uh, exchange between currencies. You needed to settle the payments. So you needed at least one bank at either end. You know, the goods needed to physically moved they need to be put on a lorry and then in a warehouse and then on a ship they probably needed to be insured because they were actually worth something you didn't want to lose it you might have had to finance the trade you had to do customs you had to do all of these things that are involved in trade um, had to be done and had to create a paper trail so so the number of different organizations that can be involved um, just in one example is is really enormous and I'm guessing it's also very difficult to spot when money laundering through a bank can be quite difficult to identify, but this is a whole new level of, of complexity and, frankly, trying to spot something that looks like a, you know, a legitimate trade, as both of those examples might be. Yeah, and as Anton said, um, you know, all it requires is trade. Uh, so literally any industry that trades anything, goods, services, whatever, could be involved. There's, no, there's nothing particularly tied to the nature of the goods or services being traded. It's, it's just the values that are, that are involved. Um, and in the example that I gave, um, if Alice and Bob just agree that amongst themselves, all the bank will see is the settlement of the payment. They don't, you know, the bank in that case isn't being involved in necessarily actually financing the, the goods. So they don't get to see what's being traded or even that that settlement of payment was related to a trade in the first place. And I think that's a key point. The fact that the bank would not necessarily see the underlying transaction to the extent that some of the other um, actors involved in facilitating that trade. And if you look, for example, at the guidance produced by Wolfsburg Group, an association of major banks, they have, I think, 90-page guidance on trade finance and anti-money laundering. But in the end of that guidance, there is really the key point which they make very forcefully, which is that actually 80% of world's trade is not financed by banks. So in a way, everything that's discussed in that guidance is useful for a relatively small proportion of cases where the bank does have the insights that enables it to have more effective controls. So going back to perhaps my introduction where I describe banks as a, a natural choke point for some money laundering, possibly the reason why, and uh, you know, this feeds into my next question, is the reason why trade-based money laundering could become uh, more of an issue is that it's possibly seen as a way of bypassing that particular quite heavily regulated um, gate in the system. Yes, certainly. Although I think we should not be uh, too enthusiastic about uh, believing that there is this great focus on trade-based money laundering at the moment. I think we're still more in the realm of intention rather than action, and I think John will be better placed to comment on some of the issues he has see he's seen in relation to how stakeholders are approaching trade-based money laundering. But clearly there has been some action uh, 
by the banking regulators, for example, reviews uh, and the publication of guidance in the UK, Singapore, Hong Kong, so major shipping hubs. But once again, if you're a banking regulator, there's relatively little you can do. And from time to time, trade-based money laundering comes to the fore in the US in particular, because there are some of the highly publicized cases concern major transnational criminal organizations, including drug cartels and Hezbollah. So from time to time, people remember about trade-based money laundering, convene a hearing, say that there should be greater sharing of data related to international trade to prevent its abuse. But I think this focus sort of ebbs and flows, and I don't think we have seen that much of a concerted action against trade-based money laundering. Yeah, I think if you if you turn it around and look at it from the criminal's perspective, why, why focus on trade-based money laundering? Um, uh, clearly, it's one of a number of techniques. And actually, if you look at the, the way the criminals behave, they will mix and match. So even in one single kind of enterprise, they will use a mixture of techniques, including you know, traditional um, you know, financial crime, financial services-based money laundering and trade-based um, in, in, in the one instance. Um, but but trade-based money laundering is particularly attractive if you're, the nature of your criminal enterprise involves lots of entities around the world shipping goods to each other, because then you've already got the infrastructure that you need to, to launder the money. Uh, and a lot of the um, mechanisms by which trade-based money laundering is done, they actually um, carry out the trade that is their core business, if you like, as an organized crime group, and launder the money in the one set of transactions. Genius. Uh, so it, it's two for one from their perspective, that they've invested in one global set of infrastructure to trade, and then they can, they can both generate income from, from illicit trade and launder it at the same time. Impressive and slightly terrifying, I suppose. And of course, the value of global trade being what it is, being absolutely humongous, I think we always come back to this probably very overused metaphor of a needle in a stack of needles that you need to identify to, to figure out which of the you know, millions and possibly billions of transactions is related to some criminal purpose. Talking about needles and finding needles in haystacks blue needles, in that case, what would you describe as the challenges of identifying trade-based money laundering? I think we've got a good picture from, from what you both said now, but are there any signals that uh, banks, institutions, uh, commercial organisations can, can pick up or any sort of red flags that are definite signs that something is amiss? Well, there, there are several publications that list red flags, for example, the uh, best practices paper published by the Financial Action Task Force in 2008 and various documents published by national regulators. But at the end of the day, the overarching idea behind all of those red flags is does something feel unusual or does something not make economic sense? And of course, identifying that is easier said than done. And recently I read a whole book on trade-based money laundering published uh, by one of the leading US experts who used to be a law enforcement officer. And in the end, the main conclusion of the book is that the guiding principle is simply just doesn't feel right. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's more art than science, I guess. And that makes it particularly difficult for businesses, especially given that you don't have the whole picture. So if you're a shipping line, you would see what you're transporting in the best case scenario, but you would not necessarily know all that much about your customer or the financial activities of the customer. And if you're a bank, then you see the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I think there are, there's a couple of things in that because the, um, uh, so the part of it is the the expertise you would need to be able to spot the the needle and the stack of needle. It's it's a it's a type of it's a, a pattern of trade that is that is doing something unusual, uh, but it's hidden in in other trade. 
And um, yeah, so, so to be able to spot that, if you're an investigator in a bank, for example, you need to know what's normal in the trade patterns globally of every different type of good and service around the world. And that's quite a big field. And worse still, it's a, it's a constantly expanding field. You know, once um, the world of, of all traders globally stop thinking creatively about how to legitimately do business in new and creative ways, then we'll be able to start you know, getting on top of all of the rules. That's clearly never going to happen. Um, and so it's a constantly expanding field. Um, and I think the other, the other side of that coin is um, to, to get a, even a handle on the ways that people trade at the moment and therefore what might be abnormal or, or risky. Um, you need to be able to see a pretty broad set of information about a trade. And as we talked about earlier, all the pieces and parts of that puzzle as to what is the trade here. Well, in the example we gave earlier, the bank sees almost none of that. You know, customs sees a bit of it, and the, and the shipping line sees another bit of it, and the distributor sees another bit of it, um, and maybe trade finance, and maybe revenue. And maybe, they all have different pieces and parts of that, of that puzzle. Um, and the, the, the need to collaborate, you know, the only way you could spot the pattern and say, ah, that pattern, though, is a bit weird, that's a bit unusual, is if you can e- even see the pattern in the first place. And so the, the, these two flip sides of the coin, the, the need for collaboration to even see the puzzle, and then being able to understand that puzzle and be able to distinguish it from legitimate trade once you can see it. So it almost becomes an intelligence sharing problem in and of itself. Is that what you're saying? And massive intelligence sharing problem, yeah. And then being able to draw insights from it once you've shared it. Right, okay. I'm feeling slightly terrified now, John. Um, <laughs> if we take a, if we pick a particular example, and free trade zones are um, are in the press of late, um, and perhaps we use those as an example, and they're intended to encourage international trade um, and benefit local author- uh, local economies as a result, but they're also an absolute boon for people who want to commit TBML. Could we go through some of the, the sort of pros and cons of, of free trade zones and talk through some of those issues? So free trade zones have been the proverbial bat kid on the block in the world of international trade for quite a long time. And it's interesting that if you look at the most widely adopted definition of free trade zones, of free zones that they're often called, yes. it's actually not clear that they should be used for illicit purposes at all, because if you look at the revised Kyoto Convention, which deals with the harmonization of customs procedures, it simply says that a free zone is, I quote, part of the territory of a contracting party where any goods introduced are generally regarded insofar as input duties and taxes are concerned as being outside the customs territory. So the point is simply that you don't have the usual customs duties. But in reality, of course, that's not the only incentive that you provide for businesses that you are you know, dying to entice to your this sort of geographic carve-out that you've created in your country to encourage trade and investment. And you have other tax incentives, you have potentially lower labor standards, and most importantly for our purposes, customs controls in general can be different from the rest of the country. So if you're engaged in trade-based money laundering, it might be easier for you to introduce goods in a free trade zone and then repackage them, relabel them, potentially engage in all sorts of uh, document forgery, and then send these goods on to another country. And that frustrates a lot of the customs attempts in the destination country to actually understand what sort of goods are they dealing with, where are the goods coming from, how much do they cost. So free trade zones have evolved into this sort of transshipment point that can be used for various illicit purposes. 
And the challenge here is that there are around 3,000 free trade zones in the world. So if you're a policymaker like the OECD, who have been trying hard to do something about the problem, then free trade zones is kind of a nebulous target. You really need to prioritize. You really need to say, well, look, these are the free trade zones we're worried about, and these are the reasons why we're worried about them, and these are the specific risk factors that make them vulnerable to criminal abuse and to target those. And as part of our research, we're trying to understand what are those exact risk factors that render some free trade zones, but not others, vulnerable to criminal misuse. If I was being a cynic, um, I think I might also sort of ask or, or sort of introduce the idea that if you crack down on a free trade zone, if you say, right, we're going to introduce some laundering controls or some sort of policing, it makes other free trade zones more popular and you're therefore reducing the value or the, the benefit of having a free trade zone in your particular jurisdiction. I think that's fair and there is an obvious comparison to be made to tax havens, but there is a difference that I think is important. If we're looking at free trade zones, it's not only about regulation. You also need to have the right geographical location, especially if you want to be a shipping hub, and you also need to have the right infrastructure. So you might well be a country that would like to trade attract trade simply by lowering regulatory standards, but you wouldn't necessarily have the other components that is the location and the infrastructure that would make you a successful free trade zone. And therefore, if we address problems in major countries that have been involved in criminal schemes that rely on free trade zones, then I think we could make a significant headway. Mm -hmm. So you can build a free trade zone, but there's no guarantee that people will come to it if it's not in a practical place to to do, uh, not in a practical location, if it's not somewhere that has the right equipment and the right people. That almost sounds like advice to the current UK government that has announced <laughs> its plans to create free ports in the UK. I couldn't possibly. Many thanks, Anton and John. In part two, we'll talk about examples of trade-based money laundering, why there's more than just one incentive for organisations to tackle some of the issues around it, and potential solutions. Many thanks for listening to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BA Systems. Don't forget to subscribe via iTunes, Podbean, or your favourite podcast app. Mm-hmm.